0: at Saks.com.
1: This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Those two really were in love with one another, and that, as we know, can make you do crazy things.
1: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. This episode isn't about a typical true crime story. There's no murder, but there doesn't need to be to make it a wild story. This is about manipulation, tragedy, and obsession. Lots of obsession. Author Michael Finkel documented it in his book, The Art Thief. Why do you think this book became a New York Times bestseller? You know, this is not a traditional true crime book in that way. What is it that attracts readers to it, do you think?
2: I mean, who doesn't go through a museum, right? Uh, my wife and I love to go to museums and we'll you know, we we'll stop in front of a, a painting that we both love and we sort of look at each other and we're like, oh, wouldn't that just look fantastic over the couch or something like that? Breitweiser, Stefan Breitweiser, who is the uh, protagonist of my book, he's the art thief. If you cut away all the moral decrepitude, he lived this sort of amazing like, dream life where he filled his bedroom with an estimated $2 billion worth of art just to enjoy them. And who wouldn't be sort of interested in knowing more? Like, is this guy a bastard? Is this guy a decent guy? Can I relate to him? Or am I completely disgusted by his behavior? It opens up a whole tree of questions.
1: Well, what's interesting to me about Stefan is how much his personal life plays into this, his mother and his girlfriend, right? Do we start from childhood or his relationships? Where does it make the most sense to give us context to how he ended up doing what he did?
2: Breitweiser, Stefan, the art thief, was born in 1971. So, all of everything we're about to talk about is not only true, it's fairly current. He's French, grew up in the Alsace region, which is where France, Switzerland, and Germany sort of meet, had a pretty uh, well to do upbringing. His parents divorced when he was a teenager father uh, left the family. The mother, uh, after the divorce settlement, bought this tiny little house in the uh, suburbs of a kind of a not the prettiest of French uh, cities, a a town called Malouz. And Breitweiser and his girlfriend moved into the attic of his mother's house. These two, Stefan and Anne-Catherine, people that were in their young 20s when they started, uh, they stole more art at a quicker pace than really has ever been recorded Brightweiser was like a little bit of a, a little bit of a delinquent, a couple of shoplifting episodes in his youth, always sort of a loner, a difficult child, according to both of his parents. Um, and then a person, according to all those who knew him as a kid, that was always obsessed with objects and collecting, liked objects more than people, found beauty, not in others, but in in pieces of art that appealed to him.
1: Did he have a good dynamic with his mother when he's in his 20s, or is he continue to be difficult as he gets older?
2: Oh, mother-son relationships. Where do we even start? Um, so I spent 11 years on this project uh, to write a very short book, as a matter of fact. One of the advantages of spending a lot of time is that you have the opportunity to build up a lot of trust, and I reached such a level of trust with Stefan Breitweiser that he actually gave me signed, written permission to read his psychology report. So I did get a lot of insight into what was going on. So there's, there's basically a triangle here. Breitweiser, his girlfriend, anne Katherine, and his mother. And remember, he and his girlfriend lived in his mother's house. Uh, Breitweiser was a full-time art thief. He committed over 200 separate heists, for 300 works of art. But I mentioned that he didn't sell them. So in other words, he might've been a full-time art thief, but really that's just a very kind way of saying he was an unemployed freeloader. He lived in his mother's basement, didn't even pay rent and lied to his mother about where he was acquiring all this art, said, you know, these are from yard sales or they're knockoffs. I just want to make the attic look beautiful. And at first, I believe the mother believes it, but soon the whole triangle is involved in these thefts and uh, as things get crazier and crazier and reach this sort of inevitable breaking point.
1: When does this all begin? What year are we talking about? Sometime in the 90s? And where does he get the <laughs> balls to, to make this first heist of his?
2: So it starts in 1994. Uh, Brightweiser graduated from high school, I believe, in 91. So he was about 20 years old when he started. A couple of things you should probably know before we get into, like, how does someone get away with not just 1, 2, 10, 20, 50, but 200 different heists? Like, what kind of a master thief is this person? Or how did he do it? The start was really a few pieces of background. One, one of Breitweiser's first jobs uh, out of high school was as a museum security guard. And I mentioned how much he loved looking at works of art that appealed to him. And he quit this job after about a month, but really learned firsthand in a way that would be almost impossible through just observation, how security works in a museum. What are the limits of human observation? What, how do those cameras work? What's going on? And he also worked another job in a high quality art framing shop, ostensibly learning how to put frames on valuable paintings, but really learning how to take them off. After his father leaves, how so his father inherited this wonderful collection of oil paintings, ivories, antique weapons, watches, things like that. After the divorce, the father who had inherited this took everything with him. And Brightweiser felt this acute, even though he was a teenager at the time, not just a sense of abandonment, but really missed these inanimate objects. And pretty much the father leaves, the girlfriend enters the scene, they move into the mother's attic. And Catherine also has this like aesthetic eye. He Brightweiser spoke so lovingly, of his girlfriend. Uh, she was the one who sort of guided his love of art. The first piece they stole, they're walking through a small town museum. Now, a lot of the museums Brightweiser stole from were these little local museums that are dotted all over Europe, though he also stole from huge museums almost the size of the Louvre, as well as auctions and art galleries. But really, mostly his main source of acquisition, shall we say, was from these small museums that are poorly guarded and have amazing works of art, but usually... Uh, not the high-tech security that a place like the Louvre has. He sees this antique pistol in a display case in a small town museum, immediately thinks of the collection that his father had uh, taken from him. And this is, he says, oh my gosh, this reminds me of something my father had, uh, except a heck of a lot nicer, a ton more valuable. And this is like the thing that I, one of the things I miss most uh, that used to be in my house. And his girlfriend and Catherine basically looks at our boyfriend, Stefan says, well, take it. I mean again I'm telling you this is a small town museum they didn't even have a lock on the display case in this place he basically slides it open he's wearing his uh, his school backpack puts this beautiful antique pistol in this backpack. And they run out of the museum, which he soon realized was probably a bad idea. Anybody running out of a museum that's now missing an item is pretty suspicious. They were panicked. They ran out. It was sort of like a dare or a spontaneous moment of craziness. They're driving back to their apartment thinking, ah, we're going to hear sirens at any minute. This is like the dumbest thing ever. They get home. They're like, do we just return it to the museum? We throw it out the window. What do we do? And they like wait a few days. They're looking at all the newspapers. They're like, why haven't uh, the police come? Is that Could we really have gotten away with that? Is that even possible? And this panic sort of fades into maybe like acceptance. And then this like sense of elation and thrill starts going on. They have this amazing pistol in their attic chamber and they're like, let's take something else. Hmm. And, you know, we got a lot of blank walls around us. Let's see what we could do about it. And from there, and Catherine Klein-Klaus and Stefan Breitweiser embark on this ridiculous extraordinary, illegal mission.
1: It doesn't cross their minds that this would be good to sell, like on the black market somewhere. They literally have no intention of selling anything that comes later on.
2: Almost every real art thief, literally like 99.99%, less than one in a thousand art thieves care at all about art. If you you were going to name any famous art crime, it'd probably be the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. By the way, it's unsolved from 1990, more than 30 years ago. Those guys not only uh, came in the night, attacked the night guards, bound their faces with duct tape, handcuffed from the pipes in the basement already. Weiser never used violence or so much as the threat of violence to steal. But really what these Gardner thieves did next is what uh, Breitweiser hated most of all. They took a knife and they stuck it into a Rembrandt hmm. oil painting and cut the painting out with a knife. Basically, even if this painting is ever found, it will never be whole. Breitweiser, unlike almost every other art thief, stole because he loved these works and had these wackadoodle ideas about museums being prisons for art. Uh. Weiser described to me precisely what he wanted to do in front of a work of art that just tickled all of his aesthetic Uh, nerve endings. The first thing you want to do when you're seeing a work of art is sit in a very comfortable chair. Already museums don't have like sofas. I mean, I would like to drink a glass of wine. You sort of want to run your fingers along the edge of it to feel the ridges of the paint. If you tried to do any of these things in a museum, I think they would frown upon it. And so really there are dedicated police forces in 20 different countries, including the United States, which has the FBI's art crime team, 20 full-time officers who are researching art and antiquities crime, but almost all the arrests are made when the thief tries to monetize the work, tries to sell it. That is the weak spot when the art changes hands. It's not necessarily taking it out of the museum, which is difficult unto itself, but museums, if you've been in them, you know those security guards are, used, are often senior citizens. They don't, they're not armed. That's not the hard part. The hard part is monetizing it. And by not even being interested in selling anything, Brightweiser was able to get away with things far longer than almost anybody could ever imagine.
1: So we have the pistol. What happens next? Does he make a switch to paintings at some point? Or do we have more weaponry from (laughs) the past first?
2: So the whole emotional roller coaster from panic that they're about to be arrested to confidence that they should steal something else took nine months, which both seems like a long time, And it isn't. Most most, uh, art thieves steal once, twice, three times in a career. But nine months later, they go to another museum, this one in a uh, beautiful castle in Switzerland, and they take a um, crossbow, which by the way, is a very large item. And in fact, he had to work it out of a window and drop it into these bushes and go around the outside (laughs) of the museum and collect it. Yeah. So the crossbow, nine months later, again, sort of go through the whole cycle of panic. Are we going to get caught? Oh my gosh, this is great. Hang it on the wall. I'm in ecstasy. Hop into the four-poster bed and then think, We need something else. And this Uh. time, this time it was just a couple of months. And then they, yes, like you mentioned, they go to another museum in Switzerland. They finally steal a beautiful oil portrait from the 17th century worth millions of dollars. Not that Breitweiser particularly cares about the price. He really cared about the aesthetic reaction. I've been in museums. With Brightweiser, part of the time we spent together, and we spent lots of time together after trust was built up. You know, I saw that Brightweiser would go by 99 different paintings and just sort of nod and be laconic, and then he'd see something that that he really loved in his entire uh, Mien, his entire attitude would change. His eyes would go wide open. He, he even described it to me as like an electric current was completed between him and the art. So they steal this uh, this painting. One of the reasons why the uh, Gardner of thieves cut the uh, cut the canvas out of um, of the Rembrandts they stole is that paint uh, frames make it very unwieldy to steal a painting. Like how do you walk out of a museum with a right. in a frame? So this is why Brightweiser would detach the frame. Almost all the paintings he stole were say the size of a pizza box or smaller. They could fit on the sm- at the small of his back. He he. Liked like to steal in cooler weather, he would wear a long overcoat and he would cover it. He would be very careful to protect the painting from scratches, warpage, dust, anything like that. Hmm. So after stealing this painting, it was like a new level of euphoria in the attic room. And then Brightweiser and anne after that, it's like without any sort of like practice or by just pure happenstance, they became an unstoppable criminal team. And for the next eight years, Years They averaged one art theft every 12 days, which is an unimaginably fast pace. And by some estimates, uh, the value by the end of the incredible crime spree, the uh, amount of art that was all over the walls of their attic chamber was uh, more than $2 billion worth of art.
1: So what does mom think about all this? She's obviously been up there. Is there some sort of evolution in the way his mom thought about what was going on with Stefan and his girlfriend?
2: Yes. At first, I think the mom believes her son's lies that uh, these are just flea market fines. (laughs) Then gets a little bit suspicious. And then after a certain amount of time, realizes what's going on as much as she wishes that, you know, this wasn't the case. And then she's in a real bind. This is her only child. She's now complicit. There's a pile of stolen goods. What's going to happen if the police come? in? so I believe that the mother, until the very end, was torn between basically having her, throwing her son in prison for who knows how long, could be extremely long time, and protecting him. And I feel sort of, as a parent myself to three kids, I feel very much the agony or the anxiousness that this poor mother had to go through, like deciding, like, you want to tell your son, quit. You got to stop this. You got to return this. You know, I feel like the only people that really knew Brightwiser while he was thieving was his girlfriend, his mother, and his, mater- his mother's parents, his maternal grandparents. And all of them sort of knew what he was doing. And bizarrely, like there was no parental figure here. Bizarrely, nobody really pulled him aside and said, hey, this is not the way an adult acts. You are not allowed to do this. They were all sort of overwhelmed with this guy's aesthetic sensibility or his just pure bratishness, but there was this weird um, enabling that was going on.
1: Hmm. What are we talking about in the 90s in France? What would the penalty have been? Do you have any idea? I mean, what? how long, how many years this would have been?
2: Until very recently, and some of some international laws have changed because of Stefan Breitweiser. Until very recently, the method you used for stealing was more important than what you stole. For example, I mentioned that Breitweiser stole during the day without violence. He got into museums the same way we do, by buying a ticket. He paid for his in cash, you No, know, didn't want his credit card down. He would t- literally take paintings off the wall, remove the frame, leave the empty frame as his calling card, walk out with it under his back, very carefully, very controlled. You know, sometimes the police would literally be running in while he was walking out. And he always had this very air of casualness. He would be holding hands with his girlfriend. He didn't seem suspicious. And to steal things from display cases, rather than being like a master lock picker, he simply, his only tool that he used was a Swiss army knife. And he would, uh, if you're following me here, he would take the sharpest blade of a Swiss army knife. And if you picture a display case in the museum, they're usually like a big plexiglass cube and they have this little sliding door that's well locked to get things in and out. But he would just go to where there was a seam between two panels. And these are usually glued with silicone glue. And he would go to a corner of this box and he would just use this knife to slice the silicone glue vertically, horizontally, and on the third dimension and peel the panels apart. If you're following me, just sort of separate the panels by cutting the seal, peel them apart, slide his hand through, take what he wanted and then push the panels back together. And that's the way they want to be forced back together. And he would sometimes then move around the other things in the display box because he wanted it to seem untouched. He knows from working as a security guard. The security guard just sort of scanned the rooms. And if there's not an obvious blank spot, they're not counting, oh, there's 11 objects in there and there's only 10 now. They're just looking no big blank spot, no blank spot on the wall and to the next room. Okay. And uh, he would just push the box back together it would just remain that way the lock has never been touched and he has the say a beautiful ivory carving at the small of his back and he walks out
1: so there is no, your singular painting that you're looking, you know, on the wall and all of a sudden there's nothing in the frame that you would notice. He's doing it strategically where there are other things in the case and you would have to know the inventory to know something's missing. And do they not have curators walking around at the same time?
2: Now, sometimes when he stole a very a prestigious item or a painting from like literally he stole some from like the entrance rooms to museum like the most uh spectacular painting in a museum once or twice this was noticed within minutes often seconds mm. but sometimes he calculated it only take him for example 20 seconds to walk out a door and he was very wise about spotting every security camera and sort of had this innate knowledge about where the lens would record him and he was able to skirt this for i'm talking for years just walk wow. out carefully. Other times, this is even more uh, absurd and yet also true. Breitweiser had this, uh, had this thought that whatever an art thief would never do is something that he should consider doing. For example, he would take a painting off the wall or a, an item that he could hide at the small of his back or sometimes in Anne Catherine, his girlfriend's purse. Hmm. And when the police would be coming within seconds and maybe the museum locked down, <laughs> more than once... Stefan and Anne Catherine went to the museum cafe with the stolen object on them and casually got themselves some lunch. Now, Hmm. that seems like the most absurd thing to do after an art crime, but just think about this. The police are running in. The last people they are going to suspect have a stolen object are the ones casually eating lunch in the cafe. They're going to run right by them. And it was sort of this ability to subvert Expectations, this sort of sangvoa cold-bloodedness, this way to appear calm at all times, to make these lightning fast strikes where people were sometimes he stole while well, literally where guards or other tourists were in the room. He could take it, he could put it under his jacket and walk out so casually that nobody noticed for enough time for him to either go to the museum cafe, walk out the door and onto the streets. Anyway, because he did this nonviolently, if you steal a chocolate bar with a gun. In the eyes of the law, until very, very recently, that seemed like a worse thing to do than stealing the Mona Lisa without using violence. It wasn't the huh. it wasn't the value, and you could sort of see that. It wasn't the value of the thing you stole; it was the methodology. And so, uh, and again, they've now started doing these sort of like cultural um, treasures laws. But this was like back in the you know in the late '90s and early 2000s. So Breitweiser, even after he's eventually caught does not get punished in any remotely in any sort of uh, punitive fashion that you would think would be just just like 4 years in prison and he gets out and what's the first thing he does when he gets out he immediately starts stealing art again
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
1: Now I want to know what this psychological evaluation was, what it revealed that he allowed you to look at. Is there a diagnosis? It sounds to me like, because I write a lot in the 1800s, it sounds like monomania is what they would call it, that obsession. Is that sort of what people are saying was going on with him?
2: So I got to see a couple of full reports and at least uh, excerpts from five different psychologists, and psychologists struggled to say what is exactly wrong with him. I mean, it might be easy to shout kleptomaniac. And uh, he didn't at all fit the definition of kleptomania, which is someone who really likes to steal, doesn't really care about what they steal. And the hallmark of kleptomania is after you've stolen something, it's always followed by a letdown steeped in like shame and regret. You're sort of ashamed about your, about mm-hmm. your obsession. Well, Brightwires is completely the opposite. He cared very much about what he stole. He never felt any guilt about it. And he exulted and celebrated his crimes rather than felt guilty. So there was no great diagnosis except for this sort of theory by a couple of psychologists that temptation something about Brightwasher's inability to control his temptation, like maybe a drug addict who knows that they shouldn't be doing more, but can't stop it, like an addiction. And it was sort of that level if you know any collectors, there is that sort of sense of addiction, and this is not just a collector, but a collector who has extraordinarily competent skills of thieving things from museums. So, you know, he told me because of people like the Isabella Stewart Gardner thieves that he uh, did not like to be called an art thief, though he never denied a single one of his crimes. We went over all two hundred of his crimes piece by piece, and I double checked it with police reports and reconfirmed every like time that there was a, uh, a disagreement between the police report and his report, and we would sort of. We sort of fill in the blanks, but um, he never felt guilty, he, fe- he never felt like he had enough, and he always sensed this, like any true collector, that uh, he must have more. He didn't want to be called an art thief. He really liked to be called an art collector, perhaps with a, with an unorthodox acquisition style, but really he felt himself like a collector.
1: Well, paint the scene for me. We've got this attic that's full of about 300, you said, different pieces, right, over this eight-year period. What I am curious about is how two people come together. You know, you have one who has this obsession Does Anne Catherine take it on, or is there part of her personality that could have predicted that she would be an accomplice or even an instigator to all of this? It just seems unlikely to have two people with this level of obsession over artwork.
2: I think you're completely correct. It's not just unlikely, it's perhaps historically unprecedented. Poor Anne Catherine. She falls in love with a thief. She liked these pieces of art. She wasn't. She didn't have this crazy obsession like her boyfriend did. But I also think that there was this sort of frisson of, oh, you know, there's the thrill of the crime, the the Bonnie and Clyde. But after a while, after a couple of crimes, after a dozen crimes, anne Catherine already was like, "What's the end game here? Like, what do you do?" the police are not going to like stop looking for you after a couple of weeks because you have, you know, you have so much stuff. So like she started getting logically increasingly panicked. Like, what do we do here? What did I get myself into? And even if she left Brightweiser behind, suddenly she's still an accomplice. So it all dawns on her that what may have started out as a sort of crazily daring Bonnie and Clyde's jaunt Becomes all too real. For Anne Catherine, she at first is like, hey, man, let's cool this down. Let's not steal so much. Let's wear gloves. He didn't even wear gloves. And wow. And the problem is at the same time that Anne-Catherine, with every theft, Anne-Catherine keeps getting more and more and more nervous thinking they're about to get caught. The exact opposite is happening with Stefan Breitweiser, her boyfriend. He's getting more and more confident. It's like, oh, my God, this is so easy. I can steal bigger pieces more often from more heavily protected museums. And so, you know, there's inevitably going to be a fissure in the relationship.
1: Well, what ends up happening? So she is growing more nervous. He is becoming more emboldened. The mother is trying to avoid, it sounds like, all of this and pretending like it's not happening. And any moment, the police in France could come knocking on the door and say, we've followed you. Somebody spotted you. We can identify you. What is the breaking point for all of this? Is it one particular piece of art? Or is it on catherine probably just having a big breakdown over it?
2: So obviously the pressure is building. Uh, Brightwiser keeps coming home with more art. And Catherine eventually is like, you know what? I really don't want to be a part of this anymore, but she wants to leave him, but she's also in love with him. So everything is, you know, the mother, of course, can only bury her head in the sand for so long. So you can really can imagine this sort of everything coming to a boil. Finally, Anne-Catherine makes like these rules to contain her boyfriend. And one of the rules, uh, Anne-Catherine worked uh, part-time as a nurse's assistant in a hospital, and she brings home these surgical gloves. And she's like, that's it. You have to start wearing surgical gloves from now on. He was like leaving fingers at prints everywhere. She's just like, she knows she can't stop her boyfriend. She knows she's like kind of attached to him by the binds of criminal bonds and also this ridiculous unhealthy but undeniable love affair. So she says, you must wear gloves. I'm not going to join you. I'm not even going to serve as lookout. Please don't steal anymore. But she knows that he can't help himself. He comes home with this amazing bugle, gold-plated, owned by uh, Wagner, the uh, composer, like this historical, amazing bugle. And he starts telling his girlfriend who comes home from her job at the hospital, this stylish crime where he had to climb on a radiator and hook, unhook these knots tying the bugle to the ceiling and sort of leap down and catch. Anyway, very stylish, acrobatic, athletic theft by Breitweiser who's a skinny, short sort of whippity guy that both used his mind and his sort of gymnastic like uh, physique to steal things in incredibly ways that I, I tried to document a couple dozen of them in the book. Well, The only question Anne-Catherine has, she doesn't really care about the stylist, that they've already stolen two other Bugles before. I mean, they don't need anything else. The the room is full. They're living in, you know, the most amazing thing anymore. And it's like, you know, tipping over into junkyard uh, rather than in the room of the Louvre. She says just one question to him. Did you wear those gloves? (laughs) And she could tell immediately by the look on his face. He's like, oh, honey, honey, I'm so sorry. I needed absolute dexterity. And she is infuriated. And it's sort of like this little breaking point where she's like, the one effing thing I asked you to do, you didn't do. And she's getting furious and Brightweiser's like, I'll make it good, I'll make it good. I'll drive back to the museum and erase my prints. She's like, let's go together and erase the prints. So they drive back to the museum from which he had just stolen a beautiful bugle. The one time in Brightwiser's life, literally that he had no intention of stealing, just wanted to cover up the tracks of his crime the one time he's going back to the scene of a crime, the person who's working the front desk notices that this is the same guy in the jacket that just stole the freaking bugle is back. Wow. And it is this moment, this trying to appease his, it's his girlfriend's fault, you know, trying to appease his girlfriend, going back to the scene of a crime that causes his arrest. But most fascinatingly, when the police arrest Brightweiser, they did not know that he was with his girlfriend. And so Anne Catherine is not arrested. She gets away. And so there's this moment where Brightweiser is cuffed, hands behind his back, and he realizes that the police don't know about Anne Catherine. And he looks up at her and she looks up at him. And they're both like have this crazy panic look on his face. And that's the last time he sees his girlfriend for years, wow. So, Breitbart gets arrested. He is completely uh, denied con- making contact with his uh, girlfriend or his mother. His greatest fear, of course, is that the police are going to come into his house. And go up into the attic, and so like he's trying to make up these stories. This is the only thing I ever stole. Uh, he admits to stealing the bugle. Uh, he's like, I'll bring it back to you unharmed. And he's like writing these letters to like his mother and his girlfriend, like, please bring that bugle back. You know, it's in the basement. Wink, wink. You know, he doesn't want him to say that it's in the attic. He doesn't hear any response. He's being held by the police in Switzerland where he stole the bugle in, under restrictive custody. Uh, he's increasingly panicked. He is knows that you know the world is about to end. It's takes the Swiss police about three weeks, that's a long time to be in jail without having any information, Mm. to get an international search warrant. Two Swiss police officers join up with two French police officers. They go to the mother's house in the suburbs of Malouz, knock on the door, they have a search warrant, so the mother has no uh, option but to let the officers in. They walk up this narrow stairway, there's a doorway to the attic, and they open the doorway to the attic and inside is nothing. A four-poster bed and blank walls, not so much as a picture hook. They look like they've been freshly painted, and everything is gone.
1: Hmm. So the police go in, and there's three weeks to cover all of this up. Is there now a collusion, or what's happening? Who is implicated in all of this at this point?
2: So, yeah. So Breitweiser, you know, he's arrested. He's held in jail. What does Aunt Catherine do? She gets in their car that they had just driven to the museum to try and erase the fingerprints. So what does Aunt Catherine do? She presumably drives back to the mother's house and says to the mother, uh, (laughs) you know, all that uh, stuff in the room, uh, every bit of it is stolen. Now, while Brightweiser's in jail, the whole story that you've read up to now changes in which the girlfriend who is sort of this first willing and then unwilling and then sort of a victim of like, you can almost call it emotional abuse from her boyfriend. And then the mother who is seemingly like sort of trapped. The two women eventually take matters into their own hands and become almost the like the second half of the book's cr- real criminals. While Brightweiser's locked up, these two come up with their own uh, scheme. And that's why the, attic is empty and like what happens to 300 works of art worth 2 billion dollars where did they all go and that's sort of that that's sort of where this uh, story speeds to
1: but what is the manipulation that we're talking about what is stefan trying to do in Switzerland to influence any of this from happening. You mentioned emotional abuse, which seems like a huge jump from this sort of charming thief, we're going to have sex in front of some Renaissance paintings, to somebody who obviously is trying to save his own skin. What was that transition like for Aunt Catherine and for the mother?
2: I mean, I know that Aunt Catherine wanted there to be like some sort of ending to the Crime spree, and I suppose the mother did too. And whether that's the one they planned, that's the one they got. Now that Brightwiser is in prison, so Brightweiser, what he was doing on his end was begging one of his, either his girlfriend or his mother, to just bring this stolen piece back, show the Swiss authorities that this is uh, he made a mistake. He stole this uh, bugle, but here it is in perfect condition. I've returned it. You know, give me a month or two in jail. Don't go searching through my house. Uh, You know, I've returned what I've stolen. You know, you have no other proof. That was his sort of desperate hope. And I think the hope of the two women was like, oh my goodness, we're all about to be imprisoned because of what my boyfriend slash or my son did. So there's a little bit of panic, I believe, going on in the house. And rather the smartest thing in the world would be to let the police come, give them all the works of art back so they could be returned to museums. They are all were kept in beautiful shape with a few minor exceptions. Neither of the women would have gotten into uh, severe trouble if they had just returned everything, but they did the exact opposite of that.
1: And what do you think that was? I mean, what what led to that change where he was the one driving all of the emotion behind this? Why do you think that they went against him and made this sort of independent decision, which we can all guess what was kind of what road we're going down here? Why did they not think that his plan was the better plan than what they decided?
2: I don't think Brightweiser had a plan at all for getting caught. I think that he thought he was invincible. You know, at first the police figured, oh my goodness, uh, you know, they obviously had this fail-safe plan in place. Breitweiser knows the art thief that's in prison. He knows where all this art went. They had this, you know, oh, if I get caught, you hide it here and we'll get it later and we'll do this. That's what they thought. But in truth, Brightweiser had no eye what happened. He was as shocked as anyone. This is, again, proven to be true when he finds out that the attic is empty. He doesn't know where his 69 paintings are, his 100 pieces of silver his ivory. He has no idea. I think the women uh, were tired of this rat in their lives, and I think there was a measure of relief when Breitweiser got arrested. I know for a fact that Anne Catherine wanted, she she needed to figure out how to way to, like, to get out of this and did. At the trial, Anne Catherine manages to make an amazing escape. She says that she really never helped out with the crimes. She didn't even know that he was stealing. She, you know, there are video, there are, there's video evidence that's showing the exact opposite. There's home videos of her lounging in the four poster bed in the room, saying, "You know, this is my kingdom filled with stolen art." There's like videos of them, but yet. None of these videos were shown during the trial. Like I said, I worked on this for more than a decade. It was took it took years to unearth these these home videos. They they weren't shown at the trial. Anne Catherine portrays herself as uh, someone who oh I, I didn't even know he was stealing. He was just bringing home these works of art. And Brightwiser, to his credit, wanting to like still in love with his girlfriend. Uh, says, oh, yeah, yeah, she didn't know. It was all me, and sort of protects her. Hmm. She gets off, and uh, he is the one who's in prison. So it's sort of this very weird sort of switching of positions.
1: So we don't want to ruin exactly what Aunt Catherine and Stefan's mother do, but it sounds like eventually this all comes to a head. They get caught, and he goes on trial, and you said that he essentially covers up for her, and she gets to vanish into the night
2: exactly that uh is the one who goes to jail the mother actually served a minor a jail sentence on Catherine one night in jail but uh I'll, again i'll fill in some more details because it'll it'll help sort of enlighten so playwrights uh, by the time he comes to trial uh in France first he's tried in Switzerland spends a year in jail waiting for his French trial to start. Um, this is the trial in which, so Brightweiser is tried by himself in Switzerland, then he's tried with his mother and his girlfriend in France, and uh, he's defending his girlfriend the entire time. She didn't know she was using the bathroom when I stole that. Uh, she, mm. Or even once in a while, she told me not to do it and I ignored her. Uh, and she's going along with all of uh, Breitweiser's testimonies to the police. It's all me, it's all me. But I believe, that. I mean, the proof that she was thrilled to be out of this relationship is when he finally is released. Well, not released; he's transported in a prison van. He's released from Switzerland, but he's immediately brought put in jail in France, awaiting his trial, where he's going to serve the the rest of his Swiss term plus his French term. After defending his girlfriend, Anne Catherine walks in and. She's got a baby with somebody else. She immediately, uh. Uh, she, ha- she starts a family, which she'd always wanted to do. And Breitweiser sees this and had no idea and tries to take back at his own trial at the last minute, like, no, all this testimony. And then is completely like caught. The truth suddenly makes no difference and it's all emotion to the fore. Eventually he, he sort of acquiesces and Catherine gets off the mother, serves a light sentence. He serves a longer sentence and is finally released a penniless to move back in with his mother. Oh my goodness, she took him back, huh? <laughs> the poor mother doesn't even know what to do and as I or as I hinted earlier, realizes that first of all somebody with a criminal record that has no job experience isn't about to find a decent paying job in fact like he finds like the worst jobs imaginable like cleaning restaurant toilets on a sunday uh like he's completely depressed and he realizes almost being free was in some ways worse than being in prison when he was in prison he had no choice there was just ugliness all around him now he's free and he has these blank walls without any works of art on it uh, and no you know no money no means to get it and he's like all he wants to to do is look at something beautiful. And he sort of has this mental tug of war between realizing that he just got out of jail and that he's only good at one thing. And only one thing makes him really happy. You know, Women, friends, nobody can be trusted. Everybody will stab you in the back of the end, but a painting, a beautiful painting will never, never, never let you down. And he goes and steals something else and the whole cycle begins again. And it's like, he's not doing it for money, but just for this aesthetic fulfillment, which makes... Some sense, no sense, but uh, anybody who has been carried away by something beautiful, again, whether it's sunset over the Rocky Mountains, a, a lover or a Picasso sort of understands this irrational connection that you can have with something beautiful.
1: Where does it end for him though? So he does this after serving this time and he comes out and he steals something. I mean, is it does he end up back in jail? Like what's the end of your story like?
2: So as I mentioned at the outset, this is a modern story. This is not historical fiction. The last time I saw Breitweiser was at his trial in March of 2023. Wow. The book continues up to literally to 2023 and again the first half is this incredibly risky, ridiculously daring rise. And then the, the wings, the, the wax wings melt. And the second half is this incredibly distressing, horrific crash. And, uh, so Bright-wise is right now, as we're speaking under control of the French penal system. And also at the same time, so he's he's on like a house arrest at this point. He kind of got lucky by the um, during the COVID pandemic when uh, nonviolent criminals were released from prisons, not just in France, but also in the United States and elsewhere, and has been able to just avoid being uh, imprisoned and instead has like an ankle monitor. I wouldn't be surprised if right now, as we're speaking, he has unscrewed his ankle monitor and is in a museum now uh, sizing up a work of art.
1: How are we meant to think about him at the end of this? I mean, I know that there are mixed feelings probably about Aunt Catherine and the mother, but as a complicated character, what were you left with after you were done talking to him about this book? You probably know him better than most.
2: What I hope other readers take away from this and what I took away with this, Breitweiser, who, if he wasn't a thief, he could have been the most amazing art professor of all time. I loved talking about art with him. I loved walking around a museum with him. I've never experienced someone, and even all his five therapists, despite the really denigrating him and calling him like a cancer on society, an incorrigible thief, all of them, all five of them agreed, along with the police officers, that he truly was obsessed with these works of art. He did not try to monetize it. He truly was an esthete of like the most sensitive form. Walking through museums and discussing art and showing me what he saw, when he encountered a work of art changed the way that I encounter works of art. I no longer walk through a museum the same way. Like this whole intellectualizing that people tend to do. I'm guilty as charged Where you. What do you see in this painting? Or if you're on a tour guide, like notice this uh, balance of form and this, you know, pointillism and this uh, look at this thematic, uh, you know, look at all the symbolism in here. All that is not, is important, but should be shoved aside. And really everybody who made a work, who makes works of art from now and back through time, they weren't trying to impress you intellectually; they were trying to impress you, fulfill you, change you, tweak you emotionally. and I hope that people who read this book, you know that you can you can be you can you can shake your head at the ridiculousness of Brightwiser, but you really should listen to what he says about looking at art and next time you go through a museum, take some of his advice don't steal the painting for goodness' sake, but encounter this in a much richer way. I really, that is the thing that I will, that I am most grateful about spending all this time in this project it wasn't it wasn't uh spending that time in Brightweiser's ridiculous world but uh I really uh as a woo as it sounds more attuned to the beauty in the world and I really feel more emotionally raw when it comes to walking through a museum and I love that so that's really the kind of gift hidden between the pages of a really ridiculous true crime stories it hopefully will change your aesthetic sensibilities I believe it will I know it did for me
1: If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer, artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words.